welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where we bring you stories of incredible women who are rocking their lives. Whether it's based on their chosen career, the life that they've led to date, or their different point of view, these women are extraordinary. Now, before we get into today's podcast, I want to just let you know about my ebook that is available for free on the Girl Tries Life website. It is called How to Take a Leave of Absence to Travel. Now, I'm soon going to be putting this up on Amazon for the price of $4.99, you know, buy me a Starbucks coffee, basically. But if you still want to get it for free, you just need to go to girltrieslife.com, scroll to the bottom of a blog post, and you'll be able to get it for free if you sign up to our newsletter. So if you sign up to the Girl Tries Life newsletter, I email you once a month with sort of a roundup of the most popular posts my musings on the month, and a couple really cool links that I'm interested in. So that's really all you have to do in exchange for getting a copy of How to Take a Leave of Absence to Travel. So in there, I tell you all about how my husband and I took three months off to travel, basically, how we saved for the money, how I asked my boss, how we prepped in terms of what to do with our home, what to do with our pets, how to prepare health-wise. So Everything that you want, you would need to know to take an extended leave of absence to travel is in that book. So again, it's going to be going up on Amazon soon for a fee. So if you want to get it before that date, uh, make sure that you sign up to the Girl Tries Life newsletter. Today on the podcast, we have Kaylee McDonald. So Kaylee and I met in our birth and babies class. And when she said she was a blogger and I said I was a blogger, we kind of just instantly bonded. So Kaylee McDonald runs the popular infertility blog, Unpregnant Chicken, where she writes her musings on the wild world that is trying to conceive. She has dedicated her journey through infertility to increasing social awareness of the diagnosis and has become a vocal advocate for reproductive health. She now has a son conceived through in vitro fertilization, and he was born in December 2015, around the same time that our little peanut was born. So it's been really great to get to know Kaylee and to see our sons grow up together. And I was really excited to have her on the podcast. One thing I will warn you about, Kaylee and I are a little more informal in in this uh, podcast episode. So if you do have little ones around, this is kind of an episode where I'd encourage you use headphones or just listen later as there is some strong language. But if you, to know Kaylee is to know that she has an incredible sense of humor. And that's one of the things that I was, have been so impressed by her is that even going through such a difficult experience that is infertility, she did it with a sense of humor and brought a lightness to her readers. And she really built a strong community around individuals that were, were trying to conceive, that are trying to conceive. And I am just so pleased to have her share her experiences with us today. So we don't just talk about infertility. What we also do talk about was an issue I was concerned about in terms of how, if you don't suffer from infertility, how do you talk to your friends or families or strangers who are dealing with it? What is appropriate to say and what's not appropriate? We talk about mental health. We talk about the series 13 Reasons Why, uh, particularly related to mental health. We talk about life online and what that looks like in terms of what you do and don't share about your family, how much is too personal, where the boundaries go for privacy. We talk about her being a stay-at-home mom right now and what, how you determine what you want to do next in your career, especially if you're someone that has so many balls in the air the way Kaylee and I do. So we definitely... So it was definitely a great conversation, and whether you're dealing with infertility or not, she is a fantastic interview, and you will, you'll learn a lot from her, and I guarantee you'll laugh. I guarantee it. So without further ado, let's head over to the interview. So thank you very much, Kaylee, for joining the Girl Tries Life podcast. We're excited to have you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So I'm hoping that you can give our listeners a little bit of the Coles Notes version of your experience with infertility. I know it's all up on your blog, but what's the what's the sort of summed up version? So I read a blog called Unpregnant Chicken, which looks at my infertility journey. My husband and I started trying to get pregnant when I was relatively young. I was 26 when we started trying. Uh, being so young, we didn't really think we would have any kind of issues. 
none of our friends were even thinking about babies at that point. We were like way ahead of the curve. We got married quite young. So we'd been married for about four years and we wanted to start trying. Went on a trip actually to Scotland and it was so beautiful and we hadn't really wanted kids up until that point. And I remember we were laying in this beautiful like uh, hotel and we're sitting there in bed and we're saying, you know, talking about our life and what we want and our life's goals. And I was kind of like, you know, I think maybe I do want kids. At, at this point, we didn't really think we were going to try. And he was all excited. He was like, oh, like me too. I was like, when do we start trying? I don't know. And I actually think I threw out my birth control pack that day. Yeah, I did. It was that day. I was like, cool, let's start trying. Like we were both really excited and on the ball and you have like this like epiphany of, okay, this is what we want in our life in this beautiful setting. So I threw out my pills, which I was like half halfway through the pack and we just like didn't use any protection that whole time. The whole time we were like, that's for sure going to happen. It's going to be this beautiful story we can tell our children one day that we were in Scotland and we just knew we wanted a baby. And so we started trying and then voila, there you were. Unfortunately, that isn't how our story went. So we thought it wouldn't be a problem, but it didn't happen that month, and then it didn't happen the next month, or months and months and months after that. After a year of trying with no success, we went to my doctor and said, you know, we've been trying for a year and we're wanting to kind of get the ball rolling on some testing, which is what they tell you to do is start getting testing after a year if you're under 35. Um, they say testing after six months if you're over 35 and if you're over 40 it's actually three months and so we uh, we went we waited the full year we went to the doctor and she was oh you know you're so young uh, like your hormone levels come back pretty good I wouldn't worry just keep trying and I was really pretty um, aggressive saying I, I don't care that you don't think we need testing I would prefer if you would test us I pushed for it um, and I'm really glad that I did because when we had gone through, you know, months of waiting after that to get in to see a reproductive specialist and then a few more months of specific testing with them, we found out that I have something called diminished ovarian reserve, which means that I have fewer eggs left than I should at my age. So I was diagnosed at 28 um, and I had about half the amount of eggs that they would like to see. So they scan your ovaries and look for eggs that are developing called follicles and at 28 I should have had about 12 on each ovary that they could see and I had four on one side and five on the other. Um, I've had other scans later that showed slightly better results with like five and six but it's still nowhere near. It's like half of what I should have had at my young age and so that was really the only thing they could pinpoint as to why we weren't getting pregnant but we didn't get pregnant. We tried lots of stuff. We did intrauterine inseminations or IUIs. Did two of those. None of those worked. I did other medications where you just time intercourse. None of that worked. And we eventually settled on doing a round of IVF, in vitro fertilization, because after a while you kind of run out of things uh, to try. And we were quite lucky and that was our first time with IVF and we were pregnant with my son. That's awesome. So but how long was that entire journey? Just over three years. Three years, wow. It's a lot of months. I wish I had the number offhand, but it's a hell of a lot of months to try and try and have it never work. And I never ever felt pregnant before that. I had never been pregnant. Some people, unfortunately, get pregnant and miscarry a lot of times. That's one of the other infertility diagnoses or diagnoses. But I wasn't like that. I never ever conceived until we did IVF. Well, in three years, that's got to take a huge emotional toll. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. You ride this cycle of hope where every month you have unprotected sex, you make sure to time it properly, and then you wait for your period to come. And every single month it was the same crushing disappointment and never mind the hormonal <laughs> surges that happen with your period any anyways and cramping and just being despondent month after month, not knowing why it's not working, not knowing if it ever would work and if we would ever have a family it was, it was incredibly difficult. One of the hardest things that I've gone through in my life. And so at what point during that journey did you start blogging? Uh, I think, a, I guess I'm coming up on my third blog anniversary. So I guess halfway through my journey, like a year and a half into it, I think. Yeah. At first, it actually came out, it was a little bit weird. I was sitting on my couch bawling because I had gotten my period and it was months and months of trying and we were waiting to get into the fertility clinic and I didn't know what to do. 
And my husband, I'm a writer and I like to write everything. I journal all the time. Uh, I write fictional novels. I just love to write and I express myself best through writing. So my husband had come to me and said, you know, you're writing this novel. Why don't you write a book about infertility? And I started laughing because I was like, me? Like, I'm nobody. Nobody cares who I am. It's not like I'm someone who's famous who can talk about their infertility journey. Who wants to read my book? And then I started laughing and I was joking. I said, no, even better. I should start a blog. And I did mean it kind of like in a derogatory way. I didn't read blogs really at that point there wasn't kind of I don't know I just didn't they weren't really on my radar and it always just seemed so silly and then I said it and I was like yeah I should write a blog I should call it unpregnant chicken because there's a blogger called pregnant chicken um, Amy Morrison she lives in Toronto she's fabulous and her blog is hysterical and I was like yeah I should be that person for infertility I should be hysterical and witty and snarky and swear a lot and I should call myself unpregnant chicken and I was still totally kidding and then it kind of got stuck in my head, like an earworm, where you hear it over and over in your head. I should start a blog. Yeah, I should start a blog. What, what would it look like? But I was really afraid. I'm an oversharer by nature. I tell everybody everything all the time. So that part wasn't scary. But I didn't know how it would be received. And infertility is really personal. And so I started writing blogs just to Dear Reader um, on my computer, but I didn't, I didn't post them anywhere. I just was writing them. And after I had about a month's worth of posts, I was like, man, maybe I should, maybe I should try this. Uh, and my really good friend had drawn me a little picture of a, ch a chicken in a, in a nest without an egg. And I was like, maybe I will, and I'll put that up there. We'll see what happens. But so about halfway through my journey, I kind of stumbled into blogging, and it really took over my life and became much more a part of my life than I would have expected. Yeah. Did you have any sort of big aha moments throughout your infertility journey, like whether about infertility or about yourself? Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot. I would say mostly uh, infertility teaches you forcefully that you need to go with the flow. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> but you, uh, you do have to learn to go with the flow. You can't predict life and you can't plan life the way that most people want to. I am a planner by nature. I make a list every day of what I need to accomplish and I check that shit off and I enjoy myself while I do it. And if I do something that's not on my list, I write that down and I <laughs> and cross that. it off. I do. I am that person. I plan everything and I'm always that person that has a five-year plan and I stick pretty close to it. And so it was very difficult for me to have this dream of having kids and then not have it happen, especially when I worked so hard at it. That's what you do with everything else in your life. You work hard. I worked really hard. I got my bachelor's degree. I worked really hard. I landed a cool job. I worked really hard. I got my master's degree. And then I worked really hard, and I didn't get pregnant. And I worked even harder, and I still didn't get pregnant. And then I threw science and medicine at it, and I still didn't get pregnant. And so having to learn to just let go of your expectations and sort of take what life is handing you is something that I still struggle with now, but it's something that infertility started teaching me and was a good lesson that I had to learn. If you don't learn it while you're going with infertility, you you crumple. It's hard. You need to learn. And also self-love. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy to hate yourself when your body isn't doing what you are supposed to do. You're supposed to be able to get pregnant. They'll tell you in health class that you just sit next to somebody and you get pregnant. <laughs> Like, they be so careful. Like, don't even mess around without a condom. Like, they want you to be careful because some people do just get pregnant that easily. But I didn't. And it was really hard for me to accept that and still love myself even though it wasn't working the way that it was supposed to. Mm -hmm. But it was a good lesson to learn. Self-love is something that I think all women struggle with a lot. And I think that I'm doing – I'm in a better place now of self-love having had to walk through infertility than I was before. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the start of the experience? Uh, well, I mean, like, the obvious answer is that it would work out. Although I think that's a cop-out. If I had known that it would work out, I don't think that I would have... There wouldn't have been the struggle, right? So if I would have known that eventually I would have had my son, I wouldn't have known that it was going to be okay. So I think that... Yeah, no, if I'd known at the beginning that it would be fine, I don't think that it would have given me as many lessons as I would have had so maybe just that I would survive it that's maybe a better one yeah 
knowing that I was going to like live through it and figure myself out and that it was an important growing lesson for me, I think would have been nice to kind of know with certainty at the beginning. What advice do you have for people that are going through infertility? Because some of them might get pregnant and some of them might not. Yeah, oftentimes people say don't give up. I think that's a horrible message to send to people. I don't know if you're going to wind up having a baby. I don't know how that, how your family is going to look at the end of your infertility journey. So I won't tell you to just never give up. There are points where people reach where you need to reevaluate the situation and decide what you need to, you know, lose and move past and be okay with. But I would say that if I could tell you anything, it's to let it develop your, com- your compassion for other people. You learn a lot about suffering when you go through this journey, but you learn it in, you learn it in a hard way, but it allows you to grow your empathy for other people's suffering. It doesn't even have to be infertility. It lets you understand the depth of sorrow and pain that someone can be walking around with and still looking normal on the outside. And so if I could say anything to people who are really struggling is to let it build your compassion. Don't let it break you into somebody who hates other people. Try and allow it to grow you into somebody who really understands humanity better. That, sorry, that's just taking me on a little bit of a tangent. Have you watched any of um, 13 Reasons Why on Netflix? No, I really want to. It's supposed to be amazing. Yeah, I just finished it. I feel like I binge watched it and it was exactly the message you're talking about. Like you don't know what's going on in someone else's life and people can look quote unquote normal from the outside and about having that empathy and compassion. It's a roller coaster of an emotional journey. So be prepared if you're going to watch it, you will. I sobbed. But I think it's important to realize that. And I think that's true because I know that that's about depression and suicide. But I think that it's the same for anybody who's gone through any dark period in your life. um, No matter how that manifests, it can teach you how to be um, compassionate and have empathy for other people. And I think that's a really important lesson to learn. And if infertility is a thing that helps you learn that, all the better. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the mother's journey, but can you tell us a bit about what the journey is like for the partner, if there is a partner? Like, what advice do you have for them? So in infertility, when you're trying to conceive every month, I mean, it depends. Sometimes the infertile partner is is the man um, in the relationship. It's not always the woman who's infertile. It's actually like 30% female, 30% male, and then the rest of it is like a factor of combined things. And so it does depend on where that falls, because I know for us, it was me who was the infertile uh, person in the relationship. And so for my partner, it was just important for him to be supportive of me and to be understanding. But sometimes I know when it's the male themselves that are going through the infertility diagnosis, it's really important to allow them to grieve. So I'll talk about that a little bit, although it's not my story. I know some people who are the infertile partner and are the, the male partner. And it's really, really hard. And at least as the woman in society, I was allowed to grieve openly. Um, like if I felt like breaking down at brunch, like that's something that our society allows me to do because I'm a chick. I don't think it would have been as well received if my husband had broken down at brunch. I guess it would depend on the on the company you're keeping. But it's really important to allow them to grieve. It's a really hard process. And it can be very difficult to accept that something that happens very easily to teenagers in backs of cars and like your brother who didn't want to have babies ever. And like it's always, it just seems like everybody gets pregnant really fast. And so allowing the other partner, if there is one, to be able to grieve and talk openly about their experience of it as well and to encourage them to share, I think is the most important part, especially if it's a a male as the other partner. There's obviously um, like lesbian and gay couples that use assisted reproductive technology to become pregnant or have infertility diagnoses of their own as well. Um, So that would be slightly different. But I think it's actually important for all all partners. You just want to make sure that you're able to convey your emotions about the experience. Yeah. So for lack of a better term, I want to talk a little bit about infertility etiquette as such. So how can we support friends, family, 
acquaintances or like near strangers who are experiencing infertility like if someone brings it up to you how do you respond and I because I think so many of us are worried about saying the wrong thing um I actually like the word etiquette that is you can google infertility etiquette and there will be lists of ways to help people through infertility and things to say and things not to say uh the Coles notes answer is Uh, It's better to say nothing and just be a shoulder than it is to give advice. Please, God, don't tell me what I need to do to get pregnant. Don't tell me that I need to relax. Don't tell me that I need to have sex on the back of a car. Do not tell me that I need to uh, wear this magic amulet and dance naked under the moon. Uh, I mean, like, people always have an opinion. The most common is to just relax and it will happen. That Um, must be the most infuriating answer. None of that advice is helpful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's painful. So when people say something like that, like just relax and it will happen. I know that they're meaning that they're worried about me and that they think that I'm stressing myself out and they, that it might be more fun and enjoyable and relaxing and maybe it will happen if we stopped worrying so hard. But what it really feels like to the person you say it to is that I'm doing a bad job and that something I'm doing is making me not get pregnant. So when you say if you would just relax, it would happen. What I hear is it's your fault. It's not working. And when you're trying so hard and you're doing all of the things and maybe seeing medical personnel to help you get there, relaxing is not the thing that will do it. It's just not like you relaxing doesn't make a sperm and an egg meet and turn into an embryo and then implant in your uterus and grow for nine months. Relaxing doesn't do that. Timing does that. Luck does that. Relaxing is not one of those factors. When I did IVF, I was about as relaxed as a porcupine. Like really every quill was standing up. I've never been more stressed in my life. And that was the time that I got pregnant. So like relaxing is not the answer. The best thing that you can do if somebody confides in you, near stranger or or otherwise, is recognize that confiding is really, really difficult. It's like um, a painful secret because you don't wear it on your sleeve. It's not like I don't have hair so you assume I have cancer. Like you don't know that I'm infertile unless I tell you. And if I tell you, it's probably because right at that very moment I am suffering. And so you would approach it the way that you would approach anybody who's telling you a painful secret. Uh, You listen, you offer your sympathy, and you give them your shoulder if they need to cry. And if you don't know what to say, it is really okay to say, I am so sorry you're going through this. I wish I knew what to say. Because that's, I mean, that's what everybody feels like. And the person you're saying that to will get it. And they will appreciate the fact that you owned up to really not knowing what to say instead of trying to give, like, advice that isn't useful. It's better to say, I don't know what to say. What can I do to help you? Ask them what they need. Don't offer. Don't suggest. Just ask. Yeah. I look back um, on our birth and babies classes now, and I I can't remember if it happened in class or in a group gathering after class, but I do remember there being a conversation, someone brought it up as to like how long it took people to get pregnant. And I guess I look back at that conversation and how shitty that must have been for you. And I feel real, I, I do apologize that that's something that went on. Oh, thank you. I'm always very open. I feel, I mean, especially having said it in the birth and babies class, I said it kind of to tell where I was coming from and that I wasn't going to get some of the other parents' journeys where they kind of like didn't know that they were going to get pregnant and then it happened really fast and they were surprised or it like rocked their world and they weren't ready for it. And so I guess I shared mostly because I wanted people to understand like, you guys are all cool and stuff, but like, I don't fucking know what that's like. Yeah. <laughs> but so, but I do appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was really hard. I was in an okay place at that point because I was already pregnant. And you were pregnant. Like. Yeah, I was pregnant. I carried all out front. Like that baby, like people talk about needing to pee all the time and not being able to breathe. And that was never my experience because my kid sat so far out front that like he was more in the world than in me. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He was so, I was so huge. Yeah. So um, maybe we'll transition a little bit to your living online kind of life. With a topic like infertility, I can only imagine that you get a ton of feedback, both positive and negative on your blog. So 
it's it would be easy to say the positive, but can you give us an example of sort of some negative feedback you've gotten, how you coped with that? Oh, God. <laughs> By and large, the feedback on the blog has been incredibly positive. Most people that write to me or reach out um, on social media are people who have found my blog to be very inspiring or snarky and funny in a time when they needed that. Uh, and they're mostly just really grateful that I have this space that they can inhabit with me and feel better. I'm really lucky that I haven't had a whole lot of trolls or haters. <laughs> but there have been occasions where I have really stepped in it, uh, really, and I will own that, like where I've kind of said something that was taken the wrong way and then didn't respond appropriately when questioned that have become uh, intense. <laughs> Anybody who's listening to this who follows my blog will know this. Uh, shout out to Greg. Love you. <laughs> Greg is an infertile male, and I, I do actually adore him. We follow each other pretty closely on social media. But Greg, along with a lot of other people, I take issue, and rightly so, with uh, me sometimes speaking for the infertility community at large. So sometimes when I'm writing something, I will say, you know, like infertile people think or, you know, going through this um, infertility is like. And I guess I always assume that when people are reading it that they know that I'm talking about my journey. So like when I say infertility is like, I mean infertility is like for me. But I don't always write that because it would become really tedious. And so sometimes I just write infertility is like blah, blah, blah. And I feel like this and so should you kind of a thing comes across. Uh, and people have taken some serious offense with that. Uh, and I, there's been only, really only two instances, which is pretty good for almost three years, where I really got raked over the coals. And I think in both of those instances, it was, okay, it wasn't appropriate the way that the people approached me and dealt with it. I kind of wish that people would remember that when you write a blog, you're a person. So like when you say you're a horrible person and you should die or whatever, like you're talking to a real person who's behind that keyboard and that's hurtful. That's been said to you? No, uh, not to me. I've had people tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about and that I am being on purpose hurtful to the community and that I should leave and that I'm not infertile enough to have this conversation. And I do find that really painful. There's a, such a thing as infertile enough? Like well, That's a whole nother conversation. No, there is no such thing as infertile enough. If you've been diagnosed with infertility and you've been trying for more than six months to have a baby and it's not happening, you're fucking infertile. And if you use Clomid one time and it works and you get pregnant, you're still infertile. And if you used IVF five times and you never got pregnant, you're still infertile. And if you've been pregnant 15 times, but you've been unfortunate enough to lose all of your babies, you're still infertile. All of those people are infertile. But there is kind of this thing that happens in the infertility community when people are really in pain when they're cycling and things aren't working out, where they will, it's called the pain Olympics, where they will compare their journey to somebody else's. It's really not helpful. Uh, it's really painful for everybody who's in that fight, but people will say things like, I'm not infertile enough because I have a baby. I'm not, I'm not allowed to talk about infertility because mine got resolved by having a baby. I'm not allowed to talk about infertility because I only had to do IVF once and it worked. But what that neglects is the three plus years that I was trying prior to that IVF working where it didn't work and there were months and months and months where it didn't. And it neglects the fact that I did two medicated IUI cycles that didn't work. And it neglects the fact that I did two medicated, like just timed intercourse cycles that didn't, or three that didn't work. And it neglects all of the year trying before that where it didn't work, all of which was incredibly painful. But if it's less than what somebody else had to go through, um, there's this idea that you don't understand infertility enough. And that kind of thing comes up when they think you're talking about, when you're speaking for the community. And that isn't something that people should do. You should always speak from your own experience. So when I have experienced like haters and trolling, and there's been a little bit, I think usually actually they've been on point. They just deliver it poorly. Like if somebody, Greg, next time email me, buddy, and I will just fix it instead of like trolling me on Twitter and making everybody dogpile on how horrible a person I am. <laughs> yeah. And I joke because Greg is my, my homeboy and we're okay, right, Greg? <laughs> Don't hate on me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that usually I try to see the message they're sending me through their pain. So like trolls that you do know and trolls that you don't know who are leaving horrible comments on your social media or your blog, 
are doing so either from boredom, in which case don't even respond, don't feed the trolls, um, or they're doing so from pain and you've hit a trigger for them. When, I do, when that does happen, I try to acknowledge that I've hit their trigger. I try to remember that somewhere under all of that vitriol is a person who is really hurting. And I try to see the message that they're sending me while removing the painful, hurtful messages that they've covered it up with. So I try really hard just to remember that that's another person. Just like I get angry that they don't see me as a person. But so because of that, I try really hard to remember that they are also a person. And I try to approach it that way. Yeah. So I noticed that you don't publicly share your baby's name and rarely share photos. So can you talk to me about why? Yeah. I write an infertility blog. My blog is out of it about infertility. While I now have a baby and he's obviously a humongous part of my life, he isn't a humongous part of my blog life just because it's hurtful to other people. People who are still struggling to become pregnant or are actively cycling can find it really painful to stumble across a picture of my baby or be reminded that I have a baby or have to read about another mother and her frickin' post when they thought they were coming to my blog for support. So I try to minimize that kind of stuff on my blog, but it is a big part of my life and I want to be real. So I do occasionally share things about my son. Uh, on the blog, I call him Baby Bean Sprout, which is what I called him when I was pregnant and was writing about my pregnancy on the blog. I've shared photos. Did I share a sonogram? I don't think I ever shared a sonogram, but I did share photos of him as a newborn at six months and a year, just because those were big milestones for me that I wanted to commemorate because over and above it being an infertility blog, it's my personal blog space that I want to, you know, remember things of what's going on in my life. So I wrote about them. Do you find you get negative feedback when you post about him? No, almost never, because I'm really, really conscious about how I do it. So if I'm leaving a post that has photos, I will always put as my very first sentence uh, trigger warning in italics and tell them that there are going to be photos of my baby. And I also try to go back to the post previous to the photos and put a trigger warning at the bottom of that post and say the next post contains baby photos. Don't click next if you don't want to see that. Um, and I also, anytime there's a photo in my blog, I put spacers. So I'll like have my text that I'm my writing at the top. And then before I put my photos, I put two spacers where I say like, you know, baby photos are coming, and then I scroll down a ways, and then I put another spacer, and I go, okay, you know, like, turn back now if you're not in a good spot to look at these baby photos. Like, please think about how you're feeling right now before you look. And so because I'm really conscious about how I share, um, I don't usually get feedback that's negative for it. Um, mostly people are like, oh, my God, he's so cute, which I obviously agree with. <laughs> and when I share on Twitter as well, sometimes I'll share more photos on Twitter that I do specifically to my blog. I hashtag it with baby spam or before that I hashtagged it, oh, what is it called? Something with pregnancy. It just totally fell out of my head. But there are specific hashtags that people use in the infertility community before they share like sonogram photos or baby photos so that you can, because in Twitter you can choose to unfollow a hashtag so it never shows up on your feed ever. And so people that are having a really hard time who are actively cycling will choose to unfollow the hashtag baby spam and then they'll never see any of those photos. So because I'm really conscious of labeling, I think that I haven't had blowback for things like that. That's great. I didn't know you could do that with Twitter, unfollow certain hashtags. I don't know how to do it. I've never, I've never implemented it myself, but I do know that that's why we do it because you can choose to unfollow a hashtag. And so... It's funny because there's so many bloggers, it, it seems to be like one or the other in terms of sharing information about your child. Like I, I totally get the stalker thing, like I, I get that. But at the same time, there are bloggers who I follow who I love hearing about their kids and seeing pictures about it. But at the same time, you're like, but is that right for me? Like it's such a hard personal decision to make. Totally. Uh, well, I've said already, I'm an oversharer by nature. So I want to share. I want to be, I'm that horrible person. Have you seen that Family Guy episode? Look at my kids. Whack, 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 whack. This is my baby. Whack, 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 whack. And they're like smacking you in the face with a book of their baby pictures. And uh, unfortunately, that's who I am as a person about my life, period. Like before it was my baby, it was my dog. Because I am that person, I knew that I would share a little bit about him and I, I about my experience as his mom because that sometimes relates to my infertility journey and it definitely relates with who I am as a person and it's still my own personal blog. Um, I don't use his name because I think that it's 
a privacy thing. Like, I don't know if he's going to want me to share his name, so I just don't do it. Um, it's also because, like you say, the stalker thing, I, I people know what my name is. My name is Kaylee McDonald. I live in Calgary, Alberta. So, like, people know who I am. I've been really fortunate that people haven't been really scary stalkerish about it, but I suppose if they wanted to, the information's there. And so I don't share my husband's name or my son's name in order to kind of protect them from that because I made the choice to share who I am and where I live. doesn't mean that they consent to them having it, all their information out there. So I've just kind of left that off. Oh, the online world. It can be a fantastic and a scary place. Yeah, I think that mostly it's fantastic. I've had a pretty good experience blogging. Yeah, I don't know. I really enjoy it, but I do try to be mindful about the fact that there are other people in my life who, like, maybe wouldn't enjoy the det- the attention as much, so. Yeah. We were going to talk about sort of careers next, but I can imagine that the way that going through infertility can actually have a huge impact on your career and the choices that you make because you're planning it around trying to get pregnant. Like, because I know even just me, you know, when you, you know, when I plan my life around trying, like trying to get pregnant, it feels like a huge thing. So I can only imagine that for you, it's, you know, stressful and frustrating and, and you have to plan things completely differently. Oh, buddy. You don't even know the half of it. It's crazy. So like most people when they want to get pregnant are like, okay, well, you know, we're just going to have sex when I want to. And if it doesn't happen quite that fast, you're like, okay, well, instead of going to the movie tomorrow night, because I know I'm ovulating, we'll stay home. And like, that's all that, that's all that it kind of interferes with. Um, Or like maybe your husband is traveling. And so you like have to start trying to time you either traveling with him or him skipping something and staying home so you can time sex right. So like that's about as much as it normally interferes with life. Uh, when you start adding in doctor's visits uh, and medication and things like IUIs or IVF where you like physically have to go to the clinic to be inseminated or to have the embryo transferred back into your uterus, it really, really messes things up more. So uh, for an IVF cycle, you have to go to your fertility clinic every other day for monitoring. So they draw blood to check your hormone levels and they scan your uterus and your ovaries to make sure that your lining is thickening properly and that you have good eggs that are growing. Every two days, okay, every other day you have to go. They don't give you an appointment time. You take a number and you wait until your number's called and your number is based on when did you get there and it depends on how fast things go. Some days, so you you go there first and when I was still doing it, you couldn't even take a number, you had to wait in the the stairwell and you wait and I would get there at just before seven, before they opened, they opened at seven and I would sometimes get out of there at eight if it was a really fast day and people were really on their game and there were other times that I didn't get out of there until 10.30 and so like how do you, like how do you have a job? How do you, I don't know. So I'm, um, I was a substitute teacher while I was cycling with my IVF cycle. And so for the two weeks, I guess actually probably for my entire month that I did my IVF cycle, I just didn't take shifts because I didn't know, I don't know how people do it. I assume if you have been at a job for 20 years and they know you really well and they like you a lot and you explain that you have a doctor thing that's going on for the next two weeks and you're going to be out of the office a lot or maybe you just take vacation. Like, fuck, I, I really don't know. I don't know. It stresses me out to think about it. It's one of the reasons why I haven't actively been thinking about how to go back to work after my son turned a year just because I know that we're wanting to cycle again like this year and I don't know how to explain that without having to tell them things about my vagina. Like, really? Yeah. Oh my god. I don't know how to I don't know how to have that conversation. I don't know how people do it. I would assume if you have maybe take vacation, maybe you have a really understanding boss, but it is incredibly stressful. Well, and it makes you so grateful that we're in Canada and not the US for that. Like I mean, if when you get so little vacation there, like I can't I Well, can't and it's imagine. also not paid for there. So like, well, I shouldn't say that here, um infertility isn't covered either. Uh you have to pay out of pocket full expense and it's not cheap. But in the States, it's just, it's it's a heavier price tag in the States. Although, because it's privatized, you get in a little bit faster. So I don't know if maybe, I don't actually know how cycling works down there. I know here you have to wait in the morning to be seen. I don't know if they give you appointments in the States. Hey, US peeps, hit me up. Is that a real thing? How do you guys cycle? Do you have to go every two days? Do they give you an appointment? Do you wait in a stairwell? What happens? I actually don't know. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you and I have talked about this a little bit offline. Um, We're both in our 30s, and I think we're both kind of still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up, because we're both people that have a lot of ideas and passions, and I I would hazard a guess that we're both impatient as well. (laughs) So with all that, like, what's your... What's your approach or thoughts about work or a career or staying at home? Oh, it's hard. So right now I'm technically staying home with my son. That being said, I started blogging again when he was six months old, I think. Maybe it was a little earlier, actually. Maybe it was more like three months old. Um, So I started blogging again, like, really quickly. And I blog twice a week, every week. And I try my very best never to miss that. And that was really challenging, but I at least got to do it from home. Like in Canada, we have an entire year of maternity leave, but I would say that I didn't really take that because I was, you know, writing for other sites and writing for my site um, and helping people with some social media marketing stuff, like within that year window. But I haven't gone back to a typical nine to five job just because I don't really know, I don't really know what I want to do that would make me put my kid in. Daycare. Okay, so I was a teacher previously, but I was subbing, so I didn't, and well, most recently I was a substitute. And so as a substitute, you don't have, like, I didn't go on mat leave, I didn't have mat coverage, um, and I didn't have a job waiting for me at the end of that year. So you can't really just go back. I think if I would have had a job waiting for me, I would have gone back. But because I didn't, I made the choice not to really look very aggressively for another job um, and to just sort of stay home and kind of figure my stuff out. But that said, I do blog a lot and I write a lot for other sites. So like right now I'm writing about three pieces a week usually, like two for me and usually one for somebody else. And so that's a lot, but I have to do it around my kid's schedule because I don't have childcare. I'm trying to finish this book that I've been working on. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm signed up to get my yoga certification. Like really I have too many things on the go. I don't really, I don't really have an answer for where I think that I want my life to go later. I kind of hope that, and I suspect based on past uh, previous experiences, that I will continue to evolve into different types of a Kaylee uh, throughout my life, and hopefully I'll continue to learn new things and grow in different directions that surprise me. And I hope that I continue to embrace that kind of in the way that I am now. You know, you need to eat, so you work to make some money so that you can eat, but I hope that I continue to discover new passions and head in different directions even though I'm 30 and I don't really know what I want to do with my life but I don't know I think that having gone through infertility made me really grateful of being able to spend time with this little person that I created and um, I'm trying really hard to stay in the present and enjoy that I struggle with that I always am projecting with like what could be my next cool thing and what else could I be trying but I'm trying really hard to force myself to live more in the now and just enjoy this this point because he's a year and a half now and in another year and a half he'll be in play school and like after that he's in real school and then you don't ever have like a lot of time with him again because he he will be developing into his own person with his own life and it won't be as integrated with mine so I'm trying to be mindful of that and enjoy it and it's I think it's so hard for parents right now like there you have to wear so many different hats and juggle everything and there is this pressure of how do people do it all and I'm like you don't but you get the pressure to feel like you have to do it all and it's just it messes with your mind I feel like I struggle with that a lot this idea of like having it all and having a baby and having a career and having them both be awesome and I don't know if that's I don't know how you how you can do both and have it both be awesome. Like I think that you don't have enough hours or energy in a day to really do both and do them both amazingly well. I would say I'm doing okay at both right now because I haven't figured out where I want to put all of my all of my energy. I um I tend to be somebody who wears a lot of hats. I always have been that person. I you know worked two jobs and went to school full time and volunteered on the weekends and was writing in my spare time, I like always am doing a million things and most of them are not similar. Like I'm going in all directions at once. And I've been struggling with not having enough time because with a baby and no childcare, I have usually an hour and a half to two hours a day before he's in bed to get anything other than 
normal house baby stuff done, which is not a lot of time to try and fit the amount of hats in that I normally do. Um, and so my husband was suggesting to myself that I take that I take off some hats so that I can free up some time. And I got really upset because that's not the kind of person I am. I like to have so many things on the go. I find it very invigorating and rewarding. And I started crying because I was saying, I don't want to take off hats. I like wearing all of these hats. The problem isn't too many hats. The problem is that the motherhood hat is too big. My motherhood hat is like a damn sombrero and no other hats will fit on my head. <laughs> And so it's not about, like, I have a really hard time juggling, but it's not so much that I have too many things. It's that the motherhood thing is so big that I don't know how other things fit within it. I feel like I'm constantly trying to balance, like, one or two other hats on the top of this big-ass sombrero that I can't take off of my head. And I don't know how that, I, I don't know how that continues and changes because my kid's only a year and a half. Um, I would assume the sombrero gets stitched onto your head at birth and you just keep it and then you figure shit out. Like, I don't know, they have a really big brim. So eventually maybe I get good at balancing on the brim. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, and I think you have ideas of what it's going to be like before you have a kid and then that totally goes out the window once you do. Because like, I, kn I knew I wanted to go back to work. Like, I, I knew that for me. But part of it is, I mean, for a while though, I was like, oh, maybe I could be a stay-at-home mom. But then financially, like, you know, there's certain limitations depending on, on your situation. Like, I mean, once upon a time, one income was usually enough. Yeah, and, it's I mean, not now. Holy moly. No. And like, and even then, like, you know, we're thinking of having a second kid at some point. And I was like, it still doesn't make sense for one of us to stay home financially because it would like, it barely makes a difference. Like, mm -hmm. you know, day home is like a second mortgage. Uh, like, it is ridiculous. And a third mortgage if you have another one, like it, it is super expensive. Yeah. But still cheap enough that like you barely just make more by going to work. Like it's ugh, depends on your situation. But even then, like you know, I've been trying to figure out my schedule at work. Like I thought, well, I'll cram my schedule into four days a week because I have the flexibility to do that at my job. And then on Mondays, I will have them to myself to like, you know, do the things that still make me feel like me. But then I find on Mondays I'm just running around like a headless chicken trying to get like the rest of my life in order like my house is a disaster and you try and get laundry done you this that and the other and like just finding yeah the balance thing is not happening um, yeah well I, it's also this is a okay so prior I was a nanny for four years in my life um and it was super exciting and I enjoy that because it allowed me to kind of you figure out a little bit of the parenting stuff and how you discipline and how you enjoy kids and what kind of fun things that you like to do, right? Because that's different for everybody. And that was all really fun and good. But I also know from having helped raise little people before that this age that we're in right now is a really busy age. Like they don't nap super long anymore and they don't really do shit on their own yet. You always have to, you, you always have to be with them and helping like you can't tell them go sit down and color for half an hour while mommy goes to write this post like you can't do that yet but in like another year and a half you totally can be like okay I'm gonna put on a 20 minute program and go get this thing done and you can give them more direction I think that right now the balance is incredibly hard because they're they take a lot of energy at this age like they're tiny little mini toddler people uh but they and can't it's like they're trying to constantly circles. kill themselves like what is yours jumping off the couch too? <laughs> oh, yeah, like, but thinks that he will land safely because I always catch him. Yep. Uh, it's hard. This is a really hard age. But then, like, they get a little older and they can pour their own cereal and tie their own shoes and, like, aren't wearing diapers. And, like, it's it becomes very different. And I hope, I don't know because I wasn't a mom before, I hope that as they get a little bit more independence, we'll have a little bit more independence back as well. But I can't speak to that yet because I'm not there yet. Yeah. Right now, all I know is that it feels a lot like drowning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Crazy. it's hard. So, okay, fast forward to your son being like 16, 17. If you could only teach oh, he's him. He's going to be so cute. Yeah. <laughs> do you know that every time I see like young teenagers right now, all I do is think about how cute my kid is going to be as a teenager. It like makes me get all excited. I see like these like preteen and young teen boys walking around and I give them this like stupid goofy grin and I'm sure they think I'm nuts. But all it is, is I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my kiddo, it's going to be so special and cool to watch him get to be that big. Like what kind of people are they going to be and how are we going to get them there? 
And the one thing that worries me about, like, my son being that age is, like, he's not going to want to cuddle with me the same way he does now. Not at 16. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. (laughs) Like, so every time I'm like, oh, maybe I give him too many kisses right now. But I'm like, no, I am storing up for the days that he doesn't want it. Three more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. Fast forward to that age. If you could only teach him three things, everything else gets wiped away. What would those lessons be? Oh, dear God. That's an easy question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay. So I've been thinking about it a little bit and I'm trying to, it's really hard to narrow it down. There are so many things that I would hope that I convey to my kid. Um, but if I could only pick three, well, we talk about this a lot. Um, me and my sister, and I know you and I have talked about it. There's a big conversation going on, like in our culture currently about privilege uh, and my son being a white male born to like an, a middle class family um, is basically at about as high up on the privilege ladder as you can get. And I really want to try to instill in him a knowledge of that privilege so that he can see that he is not the same and he did not have the same challenges as other people that are going through life. Um, we talked about it a little bit already, like having to develop empathy where people are going through things that you don't know. I want him to have like a basic understanding that what he's going through is smoothed over considerably by the fact that he is well off, white, and a male. And I really want to figure, I don't know how I'm going to teach that to him. I talk about it with my sister all the time because I really want to convey it. And I'm hoping that by the time he's 16, I'll have figured that shit out and I'll have been able to impart some of that to him. But I really want to focus on privilege. Uh, Like I say, I really want to focus also on empathy. I really want him to know that people are hurting and how to be compassionate towards that and be supportive of other people. That's really so important. And I think it's really hard um, and not taught enough to boys. Boys are kind of taught um, to smooth that stuff over and to not have to connect with others on that level. But I think it's important and I hope that I can help him get there. And thirdly, like, I keep thinking, we just are teaching him right now, like, no hitting, we don't hit, we use gentle hands, like, because he's not hitting when he's angry, but when he's excited, he, like, smacks you around because he's excited. But we're trying to, like, instill in him how to be gentle, but, you know, the underlying thing that I will continue to grow with that message is consent. I want him to very specifically understand that other people have control over their bodies, um, and that you need to talk to them and have a dialogue about how you're interacting with their bodies. It starts right now with like knowing how to not hit and how not to pull and whatever. And it continues when they're really super young and they like develop a crush when they're five. You can talk to them about holding hands and kissing at that stage. Um, And I would like to grow that into a respect for his own boundaries uh, with his physical body and an understanding of other people's boundaries with their physical body and understanding that It's really important for your own sense of self and for the way that you interact with other people's sense of self to have good consent and good boundaries. And it's funny because on that, I, that's where I feel like had I had a girl, I would have been prepared for certain conversations. Like I would have known, like I would have known how to prepare them for certain things. But I also feel like having a boy there's totally different challenges that people don't talk about and there is that consent thing because every time it seemed ever since I've had him like every time I see the media about like awful you know university campus rapes or whatnot I just think those parents surely didn't think that like a lot of them obviously didn't expect it they say that's not what my son's like and you're like what have I taught him unconsciously Totally. Or not yeah, taught it is him. unconscious stuff for sure. Yeah. Most most pa- parents aren't telling their kid, you know, just get her drunk enough and she'll say yes. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like most most people don't say that to their kids. Um I, I mean God, I hope not. But it's all of the like this comes from being a classroom teacher. I teach sex ed um to sixth grade kids. Uh and I've asked I've asked my principals to be able to talk specifically about consent and use the word consent. Um and I'm not talking about intercourse because uh, that's not what I want to talk to them about consent for because that's not where they're at in their lives. I want to talk to them about consent, like I said, about like holding hands, about kissing, about grabbing people's bums, about talking about their bra strap showing. Um, like all of those things also require consent and are 
ways that you're interacting with another person's sexuality that you maybe don't understand. And unless you're really taught it and walked through it, like how, how do you know? And unfortunately, the school that I was at when I wanted to talk about consent, I asked if I could specifically put it in the curriculum and they said no because it would cause too many problems with parents. Thank what? God. Well, thank God I have this like question box where you can ask me anything in that question box and I promise to answer it truthfully. Um, and I've had some horrifying questions in that question box, but one of the ones was about was about different sexual acts and like are they okay to do, right? And none of them were like horrifying sexual acts. It was just like these are very young um, adolescent children who are starting to think about sexuality and they heard these terms somewhere and is that an okay thing to do? And I remember choosing my words really carefully and saying, you know, when you're older and you're in a relationship with somebody that you love and that you respect, basically any kind of sexual act that you can think of, as long as it doesn't involve, you know, dogs or, or animals or children, right, is okay as long as both parties are happy the whole time. So if they're happy when you're talking about it and they say they want to try it, cool. If they're happy when you're doing it and are enjoying themselves and still saying yes, cool. If they're happy at the end and you follow up and they say yes, it's awesome and you can do whatever you would like within that romantic relationship as long as both people like are willing participants and happy with the outcome. Yeah. And so I tried like, I, I think that I got it home to, to most of them where they got that like, I really hope that it sunk in and I hope that I can talk to my son about it. I mean, it'll be a little different because he's my kid. Um, but I hope that we can have conversations where we're open and honest and, and, um, and that he takes that away. Because I think you're, you're right. Most parents don't think that about their kids. But I think most parents don't talk about consent. Like, yeah. I don't think that they use those words. I don't think that they're open about it because it can be awkward. But I think it's important. So I'm hoping that I can work that in there. Yeah. It's funny because I can see my, my brother and his wife are doing that from a very early age. You know, there's they are constantly saying to my niece, who's five years old, you know, it's your body, your choices. And, yep. you know, and she'll that say the same like thing really back. Yeah. Little. Like at five, you can tell them that they don't have to give hugs and kisses. That's like an early, easy way to start talking about consent. Yeah. Like if they don't feel like giving a hug and a kiss, cool. You don't make them do it because their answer was no. And that answer is valid. Yeah. Well, we've we've talked about some heavy stuff, so I was gonna um, say, man, that got heavy. Yeah. Oh, that just reminds me as well. You should another thing that you'll see in Thirteen Reasons Why is there's a really good example of consensual sexual relations, and there's a unfortunate example of non consensual relationships. So it's it. I think it's for the teenagers or kids that watch that. I think it'll be clear as day which is okay and which is not. So I think that, I actually think that's, that's really good. That's interesting. I will have to check it out. Mm. Yeah. So the five questions that we always ask interviewees. So the first one is what things or projects are getting you fired up right now in a good way? Oh my God. Um, okay. Well, I work really closely with Fertility Matters Canada and we're getting close to, um, we're getting close to, Canadian Infertility Awareness Week. That's in um, January, February, March, April, May. So it's next month in May. <laughs> um, and so we're, uh, that is getting really fired up. I'm dealing every week, we're talking about like possible projects that we can do, things that we can host. I'm going to be hosting a paint night in Calgary with proceeds going to support Fertility Matters Canada, who is the Infertility Awareness Association of Canada. Um, and so I'm really, really excited about that right now. Awesome. What is the most inspiring book that you've read in the past few years? Oh my God. I am an avid reader, avid reader. I love reading all the time. Um, okay, so I'll do two. First, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic mm -hmm. um, was a fabulous book. I watch, okay, and so she has a TED Talk about uh, creativity that I watch constantly, like all the time. It's my favorite TED Talk. Shout out to Elizabeth Gilbert. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> But so, oh my God, tag her on Twitter. Maybe she'll hear this. There you go. <laughs> but so her book is kind of like an expanded version of that TED Talk. So I read Big Magic and I find it really inspiring. And I, I, I reference it a lot in my personal life um, and in my creative life, like as a writer. And also I will say my sister and I are doing our own kind of book study on the beauty myth, 
which is like a really super old feminist manifesto. Um, and but we're I'm rereading it. I've read it before, but that is a really interesting book, and it talks about kind of women's role throughout life and how this idea of what is beautiful has evolved with the evolution of women's roles in society. It's really, really brilliant book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Yeah, no, I haven't read it. So I'll oh my link. God, you can borrow my copy. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite quote and why? Oh my God, like off the top of my head? <laughs> I did send the questions in advance. <laughs> Damn it. Um, <laughs> Barely. I know. But. Um, okay. So it's not from those books. Okay. My favorite quote that I oftentimes go to, and it's not from either of those books, is a quote by Marianne Williamson. Uh, it's from a poem called Our Deepest Fear. And the quote is, our deepest fear is not that we are in inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel secure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fears, our presence automatically liberates others. I actually, now that you say it, I know exactly what that quote is. A former supervisor of mine, when she left to go to a different job, that she wrote that quote in a card to me. Yeah, it's a fabulous quote. Yeah. I gave my sister um, a pounded copper bangle one year for her birthday. And on the inside, it was stamped with our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure because it's something that you like need to remember. Yeah. I tell myself that all the time. That's awesome. So two more questions and then we will wrap up. So what is the best life lesson that you've learned or advice that you've been given? Best life lesson that I've learned would probably be patience. I struggle a lot with patience. I'm not a naturally patient person. But I feel like my whole life has been teaching me patience and it's definitely something that I learned with my struggle through infertility is to be calm and to try and center yourself where you're at. Don't worry so much about where you're going because as long as you're living each day with integrity, you'll get where you're going, whatever that ends up looking like. If you're true to yourself every day, you will get where you're going and you will be happy there. Yeah. And what does it mean to you, Kaylee, to live your best life? I guess I've said this a few times in the interview, it's um, right now, and I'm sure this changes as my life changes, um, but living my best life is being able to live more fully in the present and to just kind of soak up what's happening in every minute of my life and experience the joy without trying to think of what will happen next and trying to ride the fear and the pain and not having to think when will it end and just knowing that like life is all about the ebbs and flows and having to be okay with that and sit with it is how I want to live my best life because I think when you are more mindful and conscious in your everyday life you tend to start seeing more of the beautiful things so even if you're having a really crappy day maybe you saw a hummingbird or there was a beautiful rainbow or like something small like you had a really delicious breakfast before everything else went to shit <laughs> like if you can live in those moments I think that you will have your best life yeah yeah we talk about gratitude a lot on the podcast and the difference that that can make even mm -hmm. on a, the shittiest day yeah yeah well thank you very much Kaylee we really appreciate having you on the podcast well thank you so much for inviting me I was pleased to be here Excellent. And we'll include links to your blog and to the books and everything in the show notes. Do it, do it, do it. So maybe parenting isn't your sombrero. Maybe your sombrero is currently your career, but I guarantee you Kaylee gave you a good laugh in there. And you know, she honestly just takes what's honest and true and brings it home so that you can really connect with it in a realistic way. So I loved interviewing Kaylee. 
and I'm gonna put all the links in the show notes so you know where to find her blog on pregnant chicken and where you can follow her on social media. I'm also gonna be putting the link to Fertility, Fertility Matters Canada, which Kaylee talked about. So to find the show notes, you just have to go to www.girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 2929 because we are on episode 29, guys. I really am so pleased that we've made it this far and I'm just honored that you spend a little bit of your time with me. So if you are enjoying the podcast, if you've listened to it this far, I would really love it if you could head on over to iTunes, subscribe if you haven't already, and leave a rating and review because it helps other people to find the Girl Tries Life podcast beyond, you know, my immediate friends and family. So (laughs) thank you so much in advance. Now, next time on the podcast, we, I believe that will be June 22nd, we are going to have Karen Gallagher-Burt, also known as KGB. She is a good friend of mine who works for the United Way. She's going to be talking about her experience fostering over 40 children in her lifetime, about what community means to her, volunteering, giving back, We're going to be talking about how to sustain a marriage over the long haul, especially when you go through so many highs and lows. She's honestly an absolute joy to be around. She's someone that inspires me every day, and I think you will enjoy her interview as much as I did. So I look forward to catching up with you on the 22nd, and and I just want to remind you, as always, that in order to achieve your dreams, in order to achieve your goals, you need to take action. It is fantastic to have big dreams, to have vision boards and all of that kind of stuff. But guys, if you don't take action, you're never going to get anywhere. So I want you to take action today. I want you to write down one thing right now that would get you that one step closer to achieving your goal. And I want you to do it. And I would love, love, love if you would share it with me over on social media with the hashtag Girl Tries Life. Now, the last little announcement I need to make is that I am taking, I'm a little terrified about it, but starting on June 15th, I am taking a 10 week, 10 week social media detox. So you can read more about that on girltrieslife.com. That was the blog post that went out on Monday, June 5th. And basically, there's only two exceptions that I'm making. So everything goes Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, YouTube. And the two exceptions that I am making are on the Girl Tries Life Facebook page. I will be sharing the podcast episodes so that because I do think it would be a huge disservice to the women that have kindly given their time to me if I don't promote their posts. And I will also be using YouTube for my workout videos. And that is it. If you want to find out more as to why I have decided to take such a drastic step and whether or not you want to join me, head on over to girltrieslife.com. So if you do hashtag something girltrieslife, please do it before the 15th so that I can see it. Otherwise, please don't be offended if I don't respond until the end of August. I look forward to seeing what you guys are all up to, but I'm looking forward to kind of reconnecting with the summers of my childhood and just unplugging a little bit. Anyways, that's how I am taking action to achieve my goals. So again, how can you take action today to get one step closer to your personal goals? I look forward to catching up with you on the 22nd. Take care.